All aboard the History Express. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. We hope you enjoy this episode of the History Express podcast. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. This is a story set in the High Andes. It's a story about a couple of train robbers who took a journey to the ends of the earth. They were a legend in their own lifetime, a legend that finally captured the imagination of the entire world. So my quest is to follow their trail, up remote desert mountains, down suffocating mines, and through the arid, salt-laden wastes of Bolivia. My name's David Adams, and I'm on the last trail of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Come on! century in Bolivia, a South American country so isolated that it was a natural destination for anyone running from the law. And it's one of the world's highest countries, much of it perched on a plateau well above 12,000 feet or 3,600 meters. My journey starts at the foot of the Andes and ends in a tiny ghost town called San Vicente. I'm here to find out what really happened to Robert Leroy Parker, alias Butch Cassidy, and Harry Alonzo Longbow, alias the Sundance Kid. But getting up to these highlands is a real challenge, certainly the way I'm going. This is the village of Corico. To get to the Bolivian High Plains, I need to find someone to take me up a torturous winding road that's caused the death of thousands. The cheapest way is by truck. I'm at about 6,000 feet here, and those high desert plains are another 7,000 feet straight up. This old dodge has clearly seen better days. But these wires hanging out of the dash serve a vital purpose. Yep, this is the starter. Oh. 
This road was recently classified as the most dangerous in the world. And at the moment, I'm in no position to argue. It's not actually the thousand foot drop that's the problem. It's being in these vehicles and not having any control. It's actually about 26 of these trucks went over in just one year. And then there's the waterfalls. And waterfalls mean landslides. They happen up here all the time. Butch and Sundance would have made this trip by mule. It would have been very slow, but a lot less hair-raising. Up here, trucks don't pass each other, they play chicken. And you can see why a couple of desperados, like Butch and Sundance, would choose these mountains. Even today, they're a great place to hide. At around the 16,000 feet mark, we reach the Jungus Pass, the doorway to one of the most remote deserts on Earth. Six hours it's taken, and there before me at last is the Altiplano, the high plain of the Bolivian Andes. Below is La Paz. At 4,000 meters or 13,000 feet, it's the highest capital city in the world. And to give you an idea what that means, if you're watching this at sea level, go outside and look up four kilometers or two and a half miles, and that's where I'm standing. It's quite remarkable there's a city here at all. La Paz dates from the 16th century, and you can still see the signs of its colonial Spanish splendor. Bolivia is famous for its revolutions. In 170 years, there have been nearly 190 coups, and they all had their epicenter here, in front of the presidential palace in the heart of La Paz. And this is a very unusual place to be. For example, this is the witchcraft market. Here you can buy the stuff to cast charms, curses, and spells. And then there's the black market. And that's exactly what it is, a place to buy and sell stolen goods. Just the sort of market you'd expect to find Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Butch and Sundance weren't just ordinary criminals. Back home, they were celebrities, whose exploits often appeared in the big city newspapers. The papers gave their gang great titles. The Train Robbers Syndicate, the Hole in the Wall Gang, and the Wild Bunch. In 10 years, they allegedly got away with around two and a half million dollars in today's currency. But then, they got overconfident. In 1900, the Wild Bunch posed for this photograph in Fort Worth, Texas. Sundance is on the far left, and Butch is on the right. A year later, Sundance posed with girlfriend Etta Place in New York. 
The pictures found their way onto wanted posters plastered across the USA. With $20,000 rewards on their heads, they fled to Bolivia, which is how they came to be in La Paz. But they weren't just dodging the law, they were also fleeing from a rapidly changing world. For example, the Wright brothers had already been flying for five years. In New York, skyscrapers were starting to appear on the skyline. Motor cars, telephones and movies were just about to happen. In other words, it was the dawning of a brand new age. And old time outlaws like Butch and Sundance were simply running out of time. This was one of their favorite haunts. And it's here that I've arranged to meet my traveling companion. Moshi. Sorry I'm late, though. It took me some time to try and find it. He's a serving Bolivian cavalry officer, the same guys who eventually ran Butch and Sundance to ground. So who better to help me retrace their last days? Butch and Sundance loved expensive restaurants and vacations. Today, imported Spanish champagne and the finest llama steaks on the menu cost us over a hundred bucks more than the average <laughs> Bolivian farmer earns in a week. And it was just as pricey back in Butch and Sundance's day. But of course, they had to pay for it. And they paid for it in the only way they knew how. Tomorrow, I want to experience what it was like to be an old-time outlaw. I'm about to find out that train robbery is nowhere near as easy as it looks in the movies. Next day, Moshi and I are back on the last trail of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. We're tracking their final days through the remote desert plains of the Andes Mountains, the Bolivian Altiplano. Our route takes us south to the mining town of Arruyo, where they base themselves for raids on mining camps and railways. And I can't help thinking what it would be like to be on the run up here. There's no point trying to get lost in a small village like this. Gringos are just too obvious. Moshi may blend in, but I certainly don't. Butch and Sundance didn't get away with it either. And that probably cost them their lives. Remember, there was a big reward on their heads. Easy money for a poor farmer or peasant struggling to survive. Aruro is about two days' ride south of La Paz. In its boom days, it was surrounded by rich silver mines. Butch and Sundance worked here as payroll guards. That's right, payroll guards. But as they told their American boss, we never rob the people we work for. However, any bank or railway within two weeks' ride was considered fair game. Uh, this uh, actually isn't such a tough climb. But up here at only 14,000 feet, it really takes the wind out of you. 
Butch and Sundance would go on vacation for a few weeks, and then suddenly there'd be a spate of oh. holdups. Gee, a hundred years ago, you could certainly see anybody coming, couldn't you? See the other song. But here in Oruro, they were safe from the cavalry searching for gringo banditos. Papers called them the train robber syndicate for good reason. It was a skilled art and they were very good at it. However, boarding a fast moving train from a fast moving horse is a lot harder than it looks in the movies. For me, it's impossible. And just trying it for yourself gives you a healthy respect for Butch and Sundance's horsemanship. So I resort to more humble tactics. I've also seen this done in the movies, but no one warned me about wearing leather riding boots. They slip all over the place. Well, now we've stopped the train. We've got about, let's say, 90,000 pesos. Problem is now to get away. Enter the Bolivian cavalry. Men just like these chased Butch and Sundance almost a hundred years ago. They're determined and dangerous. Butch Cassidy was famous for his planning. Normally, he made sure that there was at least a week's distance between him and whoever was doing the chasing. The one time he let the cavalry get too close, proved to be fake. Now, who are those guys? Let's get out of here. <laughs> Back in Oruro, the old post office is still here. It hasn't changed in a hundred years. This was their last known mailing address. The mail was very important to them, especially when they were on the run. Even before they came to South America, they were in constant communication with their families. They say that Sundance was a bit of a taciturn type of fellow. He was always bad-tempered. But Butch, on the other hand, was a great talker, and he used to love writing letters. And he wrote this one from here to his brother Dan, who'd actually robbed a payroll and was on the run. My dear brother, you must forgive me for not writing before. I was very sorry to hear you're in hiding again. You know I'm not the one to point a finger, only be careful. I almost feel homesick when thinking how long it is since I saw Mother. When you get this letter, you must tell me the news and the prospects for a safe reunion. Well, unfortunately, he never had that reunion because after his time here, he disappeared. So the family obviously never got together again. When they weren't working, Butch and Sundance loved a party. 
You can also still get an old-fashioned shave in an old-fashioned barbershop here in Oruro. And believe me, these are called cutthroat razors for good reason. But Butch and Sundance were extremely fussy about their appearance. I can just imagine them going through this daily ritual. And they would have made a point of looking a million dollars in a town with a nightlife like this. In his letters, Butch wrote of the Bolivian girls. They took a shine to his pale blue eyes, he said. But he also said they wanted to settle down with a rich Yankee husband. Nearly a century on, I relived something of their experience. But these girls aren't looking to get married. They're students, members of a Latin dance troupe. It's a bolero. At least, that's what Moshi tells me. And as I watch, I think of Butch and Sundance in the taverns full of bar girls, smoke and beer. They lived the high life to the full. But as the months passed, they were becoming far too conspicuous. And Bolivia was becoming a very dangerous place to be. Tomorrow, I'll follow their trail south, where I'll visit the highest city on Earth. But it's also as close as Butch and Sundance ever got to the gates of hell. noon in the high desert of Bolivia, around two and a half miles above sea level, and we're heading south from Oruro. for the mining town of Potosi, which at 15,000 feet is the highest town in the world, and a place that's often been described as hell on earth. This is what brought the miners here, a mountain of silver. The Spanish were the first to mine here, as far back as 1545. They found so much silver that at one time, Potosi was not only the highest, but the biggest and richest city in South America. But for the miners, it was purgatory. Deep underground, they lived and worked like slaves. And today, little has changed. In Potosi, you can still see something of the boom town and the architecture. But for over 200 years, the real wealth went straight back to Spain, 
to finance the Spanish court. And you can bet Butch and Sundance would have been happy to steal their share. After a couple of years in Bolivia, they were looking for a big score, something to finance their retirement. But in 1908, Potosi was suffering from a slump in silver prices. The people had little cash, and Butch and Sundance always said they would only rob the rich, never the poor. But it's important not to romanticise Butch and Sundance too much. For example, this was their weapon of choice, the Colt 45, and they liked it not so much to kill people with, but to bash them over the nose when they didn't do what they were told. So these guys were really very tough men. But this was no place for gringo outlaws to make an easy living. Today, the women still protest violently over the terrible treatment of their men and children. And up here, children start work very young. On the left is Hernan. He's a minor and he's 10 years old. On the right, his big brother Paolo. He's 15. Six days a week, they work in the same mine. And each day, they work a 12-hour shift. And the wages? Just 40 bucks a week. And out of that $40, they're expected to buy their own equipment, including dynamite. Something Butch and Sundance knew all about. Primers, explosives, fuse wire. It takes a bit of time to get used to the fact that this is a 15-year-old kid, and he's buying enough explosives to blow us all to kingdom come. And he does it every day. They insist on giving me a demonstration, but I suggest that they do it out in the open air. No point risking another mining accident just for the camera, and accidents are common. And how, how many times a day will they use the dynamite? Two or three times a day, he says, depending on how much rock they have to shift. Moshe, how long does it take uh, the fuse to burn? One meter of long. So one meter long takes uh, one minute to burn. One minute. El fulminante. Kids throw detonators around here like fireworks. For Hernan and Paolo, the injuries that result are simply the battle scars of youth. It's time to go down the mine, but before we enter, a small pagan ceremony. We must make an offering to the devil. The boy's father, Braulio, wants to appease Lucifer, who lives deep within the mountain. We must also seek protection from the earth goddess, Pachamama. She demands the life and blood of a llama. To them, this is like taking out a sort of pagan insurance policy. 
I can't think of anything less likely to ensure safety. Deep inside the mountain we go, deep into the bowels of hell. There's silver down here, but it's owned by the devil. We must have walked for half an hour. Long before we reach the Devil's Silver, I can see why they're so anxious to appease him. Around me is evidence of rock falls, gas explosions, and noxious chemicals. All of them deadly. What are these? Uh, this blue color is a copper sulfate, and this is a stalactite of tin oxide. Because it smells. Uh, it's arsenic gas. It's arsenic gas. Mr. Arsenic gas. Yes. That's very comforting. <laughs> okay. Many of the children who work here will be dead at 30. Their lives snuffed out by pneumonia or lung cancer. We're approaching the Devil's Cave. Now I know what they call this place hell on earth. Do you think it's claustrophobic in here? Spare a thought for the eight million people who died in this mine. And they say around here that you could have actually made a bridge all the way from here to Madrid out of the silver and another bridge out of all the bones of the people who died in here. The arsenic gas gets stronger as the oxygen gets thinner. Remember, we're two and a half miles above sea level, so there's not much air to breathe. And it's cold, not much above freezing. Finally, we reach the heart of the mountain Whoa. and Lucifer's cave. So the devil really does exist, huh? <laughs> Uncle George, they call him, and they visit him at least twice a week. Do you stay up front of the George Uncle? George Uncle. George Uncle, and he's the owner of the mining, coca leaves. Uh -huh. Because this Uncle George feeling jealous, and he's starting to eat into the miners. The miners come to ask for his protection and his silver. And also that the means miners. they must shower him with gifts. My workers chewing the coca. Uh -huh. Also, you can learn him with us. First, they give him their most valuable asset coca leaves. They chew these for energy, needed to survive the appalling conditions. Oh, Uncle George, more happy when, the, when we invited to him alcohol, pure alcohol in up to 96%. So it's 96% alcohol? Yeah. And the miners drink this too? Yes, of course. <laughs> then also they put on your hands, on your penis, for fertilization to the Pachamama or the mothers for plus minerals, and also on your hands for checking good silver veins or lines of minerals for gift to us. 
Then it's time to give him the gift of all gifts, the important llama fetus. Both Pachamama and Uncle George need llama flesh in exchange for the lives of the miners. He like eats the llama fetus, the llamas, and also maybe sometimes the human fetus. And you mean they still use human fetuses? Yeah, they do it. It's secret between miners and owners uh -huh. of mining. And this is very old, this beliefs? Oh, yes, it's from Inca period, Inca time. And still not, we do it yet. Kogaymet. And the miners also invited to this uh, Saitan, or Uncle George, cigarette. He likes smoke LMs or Marlboro cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, well, also. But with all that arsenic gas around, cigarette smoke is the least of their worries. You can't help admiring the way they laugh in the face of adversity. Oh no, he's happy. <laughs> But it makes me feel incredibly powerless as I say goodbye to Enan and Paolo. They're kids and they have no choice. They're poor and must work in the mines. And that's all, sir. Okay, you keep that, huh? It's a relief to walk back up the shaft into the fresh, thin air and leave the arsenic gas and the rock falls behind. Tomorrow, I head back on the trail of Butch and Sundance as they move south towards their destiny. Their time was running out fast as they planned their final crime. <laughs> You're deep in the high desert of Bolivia. Out here, only the Vicuna find it easy to survive. But it's a great place to hide. And that's why it was chosen by two outlaws on the run, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. We're heading south from Potosi across the vast Ayunai salt lakes towards the frontier town of Tupiza. There are no horses within a hundred miles, so Moshi and I hire these llamas to carry our gear. And I can see why Butch and Sundance always made sure they were well mounted. These animals are a nightmare. They're stubborn, unpredictable, and carry only a tiny load. Not ideal for a fast getaway.
For most of their time in South America, Butch and Sundance were tracked by the Pinkerton Agency, the old-time private detective agency on which the FBI was modeled. Each time they settled somewhere, the word would eventually get out and the Pinkertons would be on their trail. But even the Pinkertons would have been lucky to find them here. So you'd think that a desperado with a price on his head would keep his mouth shut. But human nature took over and one night Sundance had one too many of these and started boasting to a couple of gringos that he was the most wanted man in the USA. And of course, within a few weeks, that got straight back to the Pinkertons and they knew exactly where to find them. So what would their next step have been? Well, out here, distance is still a great ally for someone on the run. The best people to navigate this seemingly endless sea of salt are those who earn a living from scraping it off the ground. And so Moshi and I try an experiment. We ask ourselves, what would Butch and Sundance have done once their cover was blown? There are only a couple of small towns on this part of the lake, and two gringos would have been very conspicuous. So we decide to take our chances out here. This would have been the perfect hideout, La Isla de Pescadores, or Fish Island. For 14,000 years, it's been cut off by this blazing salt sea. There's not a lot of life out here, except these thorny cacti. And these bizarre creatures, viscachas they're called, they look rather like rabbits until you see their long tails. And there's something else I didn't expect you know, it's to find. incredible that there's coral up here at 4,000 metres. Coral? What is coral? You know, um, it's made by small organisms in the, in the sea. Coral reefs? Oh, you know? no, nunca, no conozco, <laughs> really? no conozco. See? You've no. never been to the ocean? Nunca he ido al océano. <laughs> Quisiera, pero no. Well, I can understand. You know, we're 4,000 feet up. Nunca. I mean, this is Bolivia, so... But uh, it's incredible that it's here at all. Maybe they date back to a time when the climate was wetter, when there actually were fish swimming amongst coral reefs near Fish Island. Whatever. For Butch and Sundance, it would have been a great place to hide. You know what I love about this? There's a silence and the absolute space. I mean, look at that. Just nothing. You see what I mean? Sí, es magnífico. Yeah. 
This would have been how Butch and Sundance would have spent many a night in between holdups, camping out in the open. With big prices on their heads, there would have been no alternative. Moshi should know. He's a cavalry officer himself. So 90 years ago, you would have been chasing Butch and Sundance right through this country. That'd be incredible. Here, they became famous because there were bank robbers who did what they pleased, and finally, well, the army captured them and finished them off. So what do Bolivian people think of Butch and Sundance today? Do they think they're just outlaws, or are they, uh, are they popular heroes? They are quite well known. People know them to be the two outlaws that came to Bolivia to rob, the two men that came here to carry out holdups, the two gringos that did what they pleased. They've been quite popular and famous here in Bolivia. Not quite the romantic vision created by the movies. In the States, Butch and Sundance are remembered as celebrities. Here, they're just two more gringos who were looking for easy money. A hundred miles south, and we're able to hire some horses. We're a day's ride from the frontier town of Topiza, and all around us is the spectacular landscape of southwest Bolivia. High in the Andes Mountains, and we're riding through a place that could have starred in a Hollywood Western. It's certainly similar to Utah, Colorado, and Wyoming, where Butch and Sundance cut their teeth as young horse thieves. Maybe down here, they felt at home. It was late October 1908, when Butch and Sundance rode into Topiza under the names of Santiago Maxwell and Enrique Brown. It always said that he and Sundance that intended to go straight. And at 41, life on the road it was really starting to get to him. What they'd intended to do was to set up ranching in Santa Cruz. But to do that, they needed money. And Butch had a plan for the bank in Topiza. But as we'll see, the plans for their last great robbery went badly astray. Time was finally catching up with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid as they approached their final showdown. The year was 1908, and two famous outlaws were about to have their final meal. So you know a good place to have dinner? Yeah. I'll go and get some local food? Yeah. The frontier town of Topiza in southwest Bolivia. This place was the beginning of the end in one of the greatest true-life Wild West adventures ever told. For weeks, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid 
waited for the right moment to rob the bank. But the moment never came. The Bolivian cavalry had set up headquarters nearby. Butch hoped they'd leave, but they never did. So Butch had to come up with another plan. But in a town full of mining companies and their payrolls, that wasn't going to be hard to do. The idea was inspired by this man, Avelina Arameo. His statue still dominates the main square in Topiza. He was the founder of one of the richest mining families in Bolivia, and his mansion is still here. Butch and Sundance learned that one of his payrolls, worth over half a million dollars, would soon leave town. And the part they love best of all is that it would be carried by a clerk, his son, and a servant. Just two men and a boy. No soldiers, no guards. Perfect. Early on the morning of November 3rd, 1908, Senor Carlos Perot, his son Mariano and an Indian servant picked up the payroll and headed into the desert. Their destination was Kekizla, three days to the northwest. Moshi and I set out on their trail. I feel like I'm in a Hollywood Western, the perfect place for a Wild West ambush by the leaders of the Wild Bunch. Except this one was for real, and it all happened here on Dead Cow Hill. At about 9.30 in the morning, right on this very spot, their path was blocked by two well-dressed, heavily armed men. It was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But that's when things started to go wrong. Carlos was carrying a smaller payroll, less than 90,000 in today's money. The half million wouldn't leave for another week. Butch and Sundance had made a fatal error. Remember, they like to be at least a week ahead of the law. And this holdup was only a long day's ride from the cavalry into Pisa. For half a million, it might have been worth the risk, but not for what they found. They had to get away fast and hear the drama of Hollywood and the reality of their predicament come together. Within a day, every soldier, policeman and miner in southwest Bolivia was on their trail. But far more dangerous than posses and the Bolivian cavalry and their guns was this, the telegraph. And Butch and Sundance we're about to get caught up in the web of communications. 
Their descriptions were flashed to towns and police stations right throughout Bolivia. Just before sundown on November 6, 1908, they rode into San Vicente, asking for somewhere to sleep. They were instantly recognised. Worse, a small cavalry detachment had ridden into town only an hour before. In the days of Butch and Sundance, San Vicente was a mining village. Today, it's just a ghost town. And one thing hasn't changed. It's bitterly cold. Right now, the temperature is well below zero. I don't think I could imagine a colder, bleaker, sadder place than this. And after such an adventurous life for those guys, what a terrible place to die. The troops made their move. So the story goes, a man thought to be Butch Cassidy appeared in the doorway and fired, killing one of the troopers. Then a violent gunfight erupted. fell, silence. The last hours for Butch and Sundance became a silent wait through a long, cold night and a bitter desert wind like today. And travelling out here in this country, you can really feel those guys, long gone. Their ghosts seem to really inhabit Bolivia. At dawn the next day, the troopers ordered the owner of the hut to investigate. Inside were two corpses. One, thought to be the Sundance Kid, had a small-caliber bullet wound to the temple and several other gunshot wounds. A second, thought to be Butch Cassidy, also had arm wounds and a small-caliber bullet wound to the temple. Sundance had been badly hurt. It looked as if Butch had put him out of his misery, then shot himself. It looked like 
a murder-suicide. Next day, their corpses were buried in the churchyard. Two weeks later, the bodies were dug up for identification. Carlos Perot recognized the clothing. They were the masked gringos who'd robbed him on Dead Cow Hill. But the bodies were never actually identified as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And so as it stands, Butch and Sundance, dead or alive, simply disappeared. Several times since, expeditions have visited the graveyard in search of the remains, but the bones have never been found, and so an official death certificate has still not been issued. As the years passed, a legend grew up that they'd faked their deaths and escaped. There were reported sightings in the US and Paris, even stories that Butch worked as an extra on Hollywood westerns. So my quest to find the truth behind what happened to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid has left me with a tantalizing mystery. Perhaps it will never be solved. But it's also brought me to parts of the High Andes where few people ever go. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid came to South America to escape from the law. In following their trail, they've led me on an amazing journey to the ends of the earth. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Express podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please look in the show description notes for a link that will allow you to help support the podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, have a great day.